nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Hi, welcome back again to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And uh, again, this is Leanne. I am just so excited about this particular show. Our topic today is called Challenging the Conflicts of Diverse Nurses' Experiences. Um, As I have previously shared on the show, I grew up in a small 2000 population, central Minnesota, very white town. Our idea of diversity was that we had an Irish Catholic Church and a German Catholic Church. I had no awareness of the issues of race until the 60s when the race riots and horrendous inequities were displayed every night on our news shows during supper. My understanding was from one perspective only, but I found it deeply distressing and something I wanted to make change. I was naive enough to believe that all was repaired for the most part by the 80s and everyone was experiencing equality. It wasn't until I began practicing with the SGI Buddhist group, that's Soka Gakkai International, that I had an opportunity to hear the stories of people from every part of the world, including African Americans from our own Twin Cities. At first, their tales of exclusion and discrimination sounded to me like an overactive imagination. But as I worked with them, talked and interacted, hearing each of their stories and feeling one another's pain, and being with them, actually, when some of these situations were happening, um, I began to hear what they were saying with trust. Once I was open to hearing, I began became open to seeing what they experienced. I had a few close working experiences with several different nurses of different colors and realized the uniqueness and similarities of all. Today, my guests are Benjamin Mackay, founder and director of the African American Registry, and Dr. Tammy Sinkfield, who is a nurse and teacher with tremendous experience and heart for people, who uses a concept called story care in her teaching. Please welcome them both with me. Um, Benjamin or Ben, would you like to speak first and tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Leanne. Um, I wanted to also add to the introduction that I'm not only the founder and the executive director of African American Registry, I'm also the nephew of the first African American to be admitted to the University of Minnesota School of Nursing in 1929. Her name was Frances Mackay. Which is wonderful, and um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, too, that we're going to be doing another show just on Frances Mackay, because her life and her experience was just so profound. So September 9th is going to be the time that we will be working on that, and uh, Ben has agreed to come back, and so I'm very excited about that. So, uh, Dr. Sinkfield, could you um, share a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Dr. Tammy Sinkfield, and even before I begin, I just want to take a moment um, to hold and to carry 
all those loved ones um, of the victims of the three cities in Gilroy, California, in El El Paso, Texas, um, and then uh, in Ohio, in Dayton, Dayton, Ohio, Ohio. just to acknowledge that I'm holding you and I'm carrying you in my heart and in my thoughts and in my actions today, and um, I'm hoping just a little bit of this loving energy I send will give you a little more hope. But I've been a nurse for 23 years um, at Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare, where I started out as a rehab nurse. I'm now a nursing supervisor. I've been working in this uh, wonderful role for almost 11 years, maybe 12 years now. I got into nursing when my husband um, was going through his uh, final stages of cancer before he died, and we had a phenomenal nurse that carried us through uh, that to the end of that illness. So I, I've always wanted just to be able to give, give back. And so this is a second career and one that I've been very blessed to enjoy. Um, as a supervisor, I get to do a lot of fun things and a lot of um, professional things. And one of the professional things I'm most proud of is the opportunity to bring story into our nursing practice. We utilize story a lot to build communication, to build trust, and to build relationships between each other as a team and also with our patients and their families. And it's really been an honor to carry that, especially as the very first African-American nurse hired at Gillette. And I was the only nurse of color for my first seven years there. So it was, it was challenging to find ways to connect with others who saw me as different. And um, the idea of story really played an important and impactful part in this journey to help build some of those bridges. Yeah, part of it is you have a beautiful open heart too, and that speaks to people so, so deeply. So um, I'm sure that helped you out too. Um, so Ben, I'd like you to tell a little bit about the African American Registry and then the Teachers Forum, just how that got started, what it's about. Surely. Um, I'd like to tie the registry into the legacy of the nursing profession for a couple of reasons. Um, and a lot of it will go in and out of the life of Francis Mackay. Um, the um, first African-American nurse certified in the United States is a lady by the name of Mary Mahoney. Um, she was certified in 1879. Um, I make this statement because all of the people in the institutions that I'm going to name off are part of the content in African American registry. Okay. Uh, the registry is a very solid portal of content that is used to not only educate in the community, but also educate in classrooms, which I'll touch on in a little bit. Um, my aunt Frances was born in 1911 in the middle of the height of the Jim Crow segregation era. She uh, went to South High School in Minneapolis, Minnesota, graduated with what could have been the equivalent of a 4.0. They didn't have GPAs back then. And she made her attempt to be trained as a nurse at the University of Minnesota. Her application was turned down because she was black. She, at that time, uh, spent a lot of time after school in a settlement house in North Minneapolis, the Phyllis Wheatley Community Center. And for those who did not know, 
in the height of Jim Crow segregation, settlement houses played a strategic role in the nurturing of African-American kids because, well, to, to put it bluntly, there was this great void that existed because of Jim Crow segregation that needed support from elders in African America to help guide youth into the middle of the 20th century. The executive director of the Phyllis Wheatley Settlement House was a lady by the name of Gertrude Brown. And Gertrude Brown was very, very good at creating relationships outside of the African American community into the legislature and into business. She knew a senator named Silvis S.A. Stockwell in St. Paul, and when Francis told her and showed her the letter of refusal from the University of Minnesota, Gertrude Brown contacted the senator to see if she, he could do something to help change the uh, trajectory of segregation at the U of M School of Nursing. On a September day in 1929, there was a special legislative session that was held to address this issue. My aunt, then 18 years old, stood at a podium with Gertrude Brown and Senator Stockwell addressing a special session of the legislature to do something about this discrimination. The legislature called the Board of Regents at the University of Minnesota and insisted that my aunt be um, admitted immediately. So in September of that year, she became the first black person in the U of M School of Nursing. She was not allowed to live on campus because segregated dorms were still the norm. So she had to move between her home at 2911 13th Avenue near Lake Street and the University of Minnesota. And she completed her degree in four years and graduated in 1932. Now, for me, obviously, I didn't know my aunt back then, but I can tell you this much, that I was born on September 5th in 1948. At that time, Frances was moving from her job as an administrator at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama to Meharry Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee. She took a train from Alabama to Minneapolis to make sure that she was present as a midwife when my mother gave birth to her second of three boys, meaning uh -huh. me. Oh, okay. she, was, she was very adamant about proclaiming that piece that she was the first person to see me when I came into this world. <laughs> <laughs> now, from there, Frances, um, she met her future husband, who was uh, a doctoral student at Meharry Medical School, in Nashville, a fellow by the name of Horace Raines. Um, when they graduated together, they sort of flipped a coin to decide whether they were going to come back here to Minnesota or whether they were going to go to Southern California. And the coin flip made Southern California the place that they went. Horace mm -hmm. Raines, along with his wife, uh, created the second black-owned medical practice in Long Beach, California, uh, from there, Frances, uh, she started the Long Beach Community Improvement League in 1964. She worked as a teacher, professor at UCLA Medical School as well. Um, and she spent the rest of her life working diligently for 
equity, if you will, in both the nursing profession and in the community at large in Southern California. Now, through those years, Francis and I got to know each other very, very intimately. I used to spend summers out there a lot with my aunt. Um, she taught me how to properly fold towels, which I think <laughs> was something she learned as a nursing student at the University of Minnesota. She was adamant about um, the, uh, the, the Eastern methodology of medical practice, which she learned at Tuskegee. Um, she was just a very, very learned person, and she was also very, very interested in making sure that those that came before her and after her were acknowledged more and more, mm-hmm. hence a lot of the material that is in the website African American Registry. It includes people like Janet Bragg, who got her nursing degree uh, the same year that my aunt started at the University of Minnesota, 1929. We talk about the National Association of Colored Nurses, Colored Graduate Nurses, which was founded in 1908. We talk about novelist Nella Larson, who was a, a 1916 Associate Superintendent of Nurses at Tuskegee Institute. And finally, I'll add that we talk about people like Selma Burke. If any of your listeners have a 10-cent piece or a dime in their purse or in their pocket, the bust of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sculpted by Selma Burke. Her previous mm. profession before becoming a sculptor was that as a, a nursing practitioner at Winston-Salem University in 1912. So the registry is filled with a lot of information. We use it in community. We also use it uh, deeply in um, the educational profession. We have had state-sponsored legislation that has given us the ability to work with teacher candidates at four universities throughout the state of Minnesota, and we're hoping to expand beyond the borders of Minnesota in the future. We are currently working with the University of St. Thomas. We are currently working with Minnesota State University Mankato, and we're probably going to be at St. Cloud State University next month. And we just finished up working with candidates at Metro State University School of Urban Education. Our service is called the Teachers Forum. And what we do is we take the African-American community, the heritage, which is a combination of history and culture, we divide it up into 15 subject categories to help strengthen the existing white Eurocentric um, curriculum to make it more diverse. And we do that because we want the teaching students of this state who are going to be in the classrooms that are getting browner and browner every week to be able to use content that will reflect the lifestyle of the students of today and tomorrow. Our teachers forum, as I said, has 15 different subject categories. STEM in medicine is one of them. That is where you're going to find some of the episodes and the people that I just mentioned and much, much more available in 52 different languages to be taught going forward. With Uh that, I'd like to um, add a piece of audio material to this conversation to showcase the importance and the vastness of African-American Registry's 
teacher's form, if you would. Yes, this would be a really good place to play that um, little clip. How vast is the teacher's form? Hmm. This is, I think, the hidden secret of the teacher's form. Uh, that tool, that assessment piece, that engagement piece, that's not limited to any one region or, as someone would say, maybe geographical area or subject area. The, the, the pieces in the teacher's form, the lesson plans, getting to standards, doesn't matter where you're teaching at. Uh, that could be in urban schools around the United States. Um, it could be in what we would call uh, going global, global schools, international schools, rural uh, outline areas. This work is designed in a way that doesn't matter where, where I'm at, if I understand my learning goal and the learning outcome, I'm gonna tap into that. So maybe I'm working with music majors, you tap into that. Maybe I'm working with pre-service teachers in STEM. Maybe it's the English major, maybe it's the artist. Maybe, maybe, maybe. The point is, it is always revolving and evolving to tap into today's learner. That is the richness of doing this work. And that's what effective teachers do. Effective teachers are not stagnant and they take this tool with them. They put it in their hip pocket, their backpack, whatever term, but it deals with the relevant pedagogy. It deals with culturally relevant pedagogy to change the learning outcomes of all students. It informs the learning process, and that is the beauty of this. And we'll see what happens as we continue to educate and bring new teachers as well as seasoned teachers into the fold and uh, move our students where they need to be. Thank you. That is very interesting. Ben, do you want to add anything to um, explain that or um, uh, identify the speaker? Sure. The speaker is on the board of African American Registry. She's uh, one of our longest standing board members. Her name is Dr. Yvonne Banks. She is um, a professor in the School of Urban Education at Metropolitan State University. She comes from Chicago, Illinois. Um, she is uh, a stalwart supporter of culturally, uh, of culturally responsive pedagogy and content, and she really believes in what the Teachers Forum does, meaning to redefine the narrative in all subject areas to be more inclusive of people that are black, people that are brown, people that are yellow, people that are, 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 are um, red, people that are white. One of the things that uh, Dr. Banks and I often talk about is how, as Frederick Douglass said, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And oh, that's that why, is so true. That's why the Teachers Forum is focusing on teacher candidates. It's not that we've given up on current licensed teachers, but we know that the affinity for wanting to learn in areas that are not part of the current structure is more receptive to teacher candidates currently. This is why we're making an impact on somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,000 students at these four campuses going forward. 
and Dr. Banks and I will be down at Minnesota State University, Mankato, a week from today at the initial faculty meeting before the fall semester at that institution. Uh, Ben, could you share what's the address, the online website um, for the uh, African American Registry so that people want to look deeper, they can do that? Surely. After the three W's and the dot, it is aaregistry, one word, dot O-R-G. Perfect. We're going to take a break here. I think this is a nice place to break. So um, this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And if you're just coming in, I wanted to make sure you know that my guests today are Ben Mackay. And he is sharing about the incredible work that he's been doing for uh, making sure that people are aware of all of the incredible things that African Americans have done in our country. And so he's um, set up a, a registry that he was just discussing and talking about, and then also helping teachers to be able to teach to a more diverse concept of whatever the topic is through the teacher's forum. When we come back, uh, my other guest is Dr. Uh, Tammy Sinkfield, and she will be talking with me about what are some of those issues that affect um, people who are not white in a very white medical environment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact senior executive producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Welcome back uh, to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. This is Leanne Meyer, and today our topic is Challenging the Conflicts of Diverse Nurses' Experiences. We started with um, Benjamin uh, Mackay, and he was uh, rolling into uh, the work that he's been doing with the African American Registry and uh, the Teachers Forum, uh, the history of his own aunt, who was um, absolutely a pioneer in, for sure, nursing and in medicine in general. Um, and so we're going to go from that now to Dr. Uh, Tammy Sinkfield. Um, she uh, was both a nurse, as I said, but she also was a teacher. So, uh, Tammy, can you uh, bring in uh, that side of the story? Certainly, Leanne, and thank you. You know, when I think about that aspect of pedagogy or teaching and learning um, as it applies to nursing, that is one of the, the major sources of conflict that I think nurses of color face, at least in my experience um, as a teacher and as a learner, uh, that was prominent. Um, during my ADN degree, I, I kind of did a track. I did my ADN, my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. But during my ADN, well, actually during throughout uh, most of my curriculum, I never had an instructor of color or a professor of color, um, and which was one of the reasons I was inspired to go into education as a nurse of color so that there were opportunities for students of color that were coming through the nursing program to have somebody that they could connect with. Um, it impacted me immensely. I remember the first uh, week that I was in my office for, for teaching at, at the Century program, and I had a professor from another department, and we're talking about 15, 19 years ago, when um, in 2000, before natural hair for black women was a thing, mm-hmm. and I wore natural hair at that time, and a professor from another department um, came to introduce myself, but also made it a point to tell me he didn't think my hair, he thought my hair was too eth- ethnic and not hmm. professional enough as for an instructor in that department. So it goes way back a long ways, you know, even when you think about in the 60s and 70s, um, that kind of the climate for African Americans to come together and express their pride in their identity and demand, to demand equality and fight against racism and discrimination um, is still prevalent today in teaching and in learning and in healthcare. So we have a lot of work to do, as, and which are many of the conflicts that we face. As a teacher, I had a student that I had um, was in my group of ten when we went for a clinical. Um, at one of the hospitals, and the student actually told me, um, who was the only black instruct- instructor in that program, that she refused to have niggers for her patients. Wow. Um, as powerful as that was, and not really certain at the moment how I needed to manage that, I thought this is an opportunity for learning for me and for her as well as the other students. And I put her with every single family of color that I could find, never once. Mm-hmm putting her with a white family because she needed to decide if she really wanted to be a nurse or not to care for people. 
um, Mm -hmm. during that entire eight-week or ten-week experience, she was very angry at me, needless to say. But by the time she graduated, I was the first professor that she came to and said thank and thanked me for helping mm-hmm. her to be a better her. And I believe right. now she's working in underserved areas. So, you know, there's always opportunities for learning and to find mutuality and commonality in, in our engagement with people, which is how I kind of got on to um, found my passion for transcultural nursing. I, as a, the first and only nurse at Gillette for many, many years, my first patient out of, uh, out of orientation was a family whose grandfather, a family from Texas. And when I walked into the room, the first thing the, the grandfather said to me was, and get out of this room. And to my astonishment and to everyone else's astonishment, um, I continued to try to help position the patient. And once again, he shouted, you and get out of this room, I said. And, you know, so dealing with that and that, that aggression, that level of anger and hostility for someone that didn't know me um, was mm-hmm. devastating as a new nurse. But mm-hmm. through that, it afforded me the opportunity to try to figure out ways that we connect, could, can connect and find a sense of humanity in our culture. Um, and it really was the impetus for me starting to learn about transcultural nursing and to be able to use it in my practice. So you were actually not only learning nursing, I mean, you had had the schooling, but to put that into effect uh, on, a, on a unit with real patients. And at the same time, you were learning how to uh, work around some of these very strong uh, reactions to you not really personally, but to you as an African-American, um, that must have been a real plateful to deal with. Oh, it was. You know, and I think it, it challenges our sense of identity, but often being the only in so many environments, I think I had an advantage that many others don't have. Um, mm-hmm. One, to recognize it, and then to have enough confidence and pride in myself that I can navigate through it. But... For those nurses that are in practice now that don't have those opportunities prior to that and are faced with those conflicts, it's trying to find resources and support and and organizational um, reassurance that they're going to be held and they're going to be respected and valued and carried through that and those things will be managed. That's rare. I mean, it's... I don't know that organizations really understand the impact that it has because they're mostly fostered by white people. So mm-hmm. having a sense of compassion about specific entities that in- involve race and racism and discriminatory patterns, we're not there yet. And it, it, it's a huge burden on the, on the spirit and on the psyche of people that are, are in service to provide care for others. Right. Did you have an instructor that would stand up for you? You know, I, now, while a student, I was never called. Um, I, 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 there okay. was never any offenses upon me. Um, as a student, it was just the idea that there, were no, there was no one that looked like me that was teaching me. I would sure. be with, I would have mentors. Their nursing students are paired up with mentors. And mm-hmm. most of my mentors were young, 20-something white women, um, and here I was, a middle-aged, single-parent black woman that had, uh, whose life was so different than a lot of the people I was paired with, uh, they 
didn't understand my plight. They didn't understand my journey. So it was hard to connect and provide the correct mentorship that I needed as a nurse. But I did have a phenomenal dean of nursing, Ellie Sleddy, who took my hand and saw that there was these discrepancies in what my experiences were and what some of the mentors were. And she was one, one of the ones that inspired me to go into teaching because she, she, she knew mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. all of America needed to be represented in the classroom, and it wasn't. And that was her way of trying to help to rectify that. Well, she saw your ability to be a leader and to be somebody that could, um, people could look up to. And, uh, you know, just that side by side through the teaching, that's a very intimate relationship anyway with student and instructor. Um, but in this case, it would be even more of a challenge. And um, one of the, the words or the terms that seem to be um, bandied about a lot lately is that concept of white privilege. And coming from the North, where people just do not have a concept whatsoever of what's being talked about, because they feel like, my life is challenging, my life is, um, you know, difficult, how can you say I have privilege um, when I'm white? They don't understand the other side of the story, so they don't understand how their story um, is different. Exactly. Can Can you address that at all? You know, I can, and, it, and it, a lot of it, is, it speaks upon the, the idea of implicit biases, too, where those lifetime mm-hmm. experiences and our cultural his, history shapes what, who we are and what we believe and the judgments we have of others. So we don't see outside of that. We see that um, I have what I have because I've worked for it, or you don't have what you don't have because you've not been, you've not put the effort forth into it. We don't see that as a history that has garnered this idea of superiority or supremacy in effort to belittle or to um, demoralize or to, to demean another being by nature of race. So the, the idea of, of white privilege comes from the fact that there was this hierarchy created without respect to it being... Um, solely about race, but it's an indoctrine, a feeling of indoctrination that people that have that, that feel that, they have that privilege, um, they, they produce. And because I'll give you so an example. Intuitive. I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking of, you know, with my mindset coming from this small town in Minnesota. Um, I uh, was on a bus trip with uh, two teachers. One was a professor, Rafala Green, and the other was a teacher in an uh, alternate uh, high school, Anna Stanley. And the two of them were African-Americans. They were the most impressive people I knew at that point. I mean, I was so amazed at how much um, knowledge, one, but then also how much they were teaching. So they had been talking about uh, the reaction to them that when they would go into uh, a store, that people would walk around, follow them afterward, and uh, to make sure that they weren't stealing anything. And in my own mind, I'm thinking that is really way over the top. They're imagining that. That is not happening. And so it just happened that on this trip, we had stopped at a gas station, went into the gas station. A number of us went in, all white. Not a single person was followed. And as soon as uh, Professor Green and Anna Stanley walked in, they were immediately followed. And I was right behind that. So I was observing this thing happening and I couldn't believe it. Um, It was just, um, I couldn't believe that 
that this could happen in this day and time in our country and realizing that's how naive I was. But that's the norm. That, that's a lived experience. That's one of those lived experiences that, happens, that has happened throughout, throughout slavery in our society, that there is that echelon, that there's that hierarchy where a group of people just think they're better and they have an automatic impression of another group of people without mm-hmm. challenging that mm-hmm. belief or that sense of consciousness. I don't know, Ben might even want right. to speak to that. Ben, do you want to say anything about that? Um, sure, I can. You know, you know, I want to try and curve it into the nursing profession okay. uh, as well. Uh, you know, I've lived in Minnesota for 30 years. And uh, in your introduction... Um, in the hostess introduction, she talked about what diversity meant in the small town she was raised in. I, when I was beginning to shop our teachers' forum at campuses around the nine-county metro area, I was at Concordia University talking to the assistant dean of that school mm-hmm. about the teachers' forum, and and she was trying to be funny, and she was quite funny in describing. Um, diversity from a Minnesota perspective, and she mm-hmm. almost identical. She almost used the identical um, uh, statement that you used, Leah. Mm-hmm. Except she said, "Diversity in Minnesota is when a Sweden and Norwegian talk to each other in public." Yeah, right. yep, 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 yep. Which is, you know, that's fine up to a point. Mm-hmm. But I think from using your statement about up here in the north, one of the things that people in Minnesota might want to reconsider is that implicit uh, connection to slavery purely from a labor standpoint. I mean, I understand Mm -hmm. that Minnesota was not a slave-holding state, but I also understand that cotton is not grown in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. sugar is not grown in Minnesota, and tobacco is not grown in Minnesota uh, either. And everybody in Minnesota, from the first fur trapper to 1858, when it became a state, probably consumed or used those three things. Right. They had to have bought them from slave owners. Right. And so they, so there is there is this connection to slavery that Minnesota owns. Uh-huh. And then I might also add that. Uh, you know the 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 house that that was built in in the town where Leanne is from probably wasn't purchased uh, rightfully from the Native American people who owned the right. land before they even got here. Exactly. All of that. Actually, all, actually all of that my stuff, mother my mother grew up right uh, very near to the um, uh, 1862 um, slaughter, basically, that happened near New Ulm. Um, And she was a matter of a few miles from there growing up. So, uh, surely, yeah, that was all white homesteaded uh, land that was taken away from Indians. My grandmother, my great-grandmother herself, a Native American, half Native American, had land that was just taken from her, and she was... Mm -hmm abused in front of her children when they were confiscating that land. So, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you even the think today about to 13% of the people are African American that live in Minnesota, and I am the only black nurse in a faci- right. healthcare facility that cares for this same community, that's a testimony to that idea, that doctrine of white supremacy that... Um, we we can give and take and, and, and that that institutionalized racism that sits there that nobody ever challenges. Can you know, and, and it's starting to be challenged a little bit more uh, in this century, and that's part of the pedagogy that the teachers form uses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to to create these these factual stories that can meet state standards and therefore work within the construct of what a teacher who is licensed in this state is supposed to teach. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm sure all of your listeners and the two of you know who Mark Twain was. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, beyond Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain made a quote that we use as part of the mantra that directs our method and pedagogy of teaching. Mm-hmm. He said that the emancipation of slavery not only freed blacks, but it freed whites too. Exactly. And so, and so, therefore, uh, culturally responsive content and pedagogy is not there simply to support the the non-white students in. STEM or medicine or literature or history or finance or or theater or whatever, it is there to help the reality of white students too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Is, there is so much beauty and power after the discomfort of realizing what your privilege means to you going forward. And that is the liberation that I believe Mark Twain was talking about. Mm-hmm. And then one more thing I wanted to add, too, regarding the healthcare profession. During slavery, when, when white people got sick, we were the ones that took care of them, African Americans uh-huh. mm-hmm. or, or black people. We were the ones that, that, that nursed them. And, and that's part of our story going forward. We're really good at this stuff. We just need the opportunity to show our medal at the level that Dr. Sinkfield is, as an example, or the first scholar from the Francis Mackay Scholarship at the University of Minnesota to help them be the best that they can be to support the profession going forward because the bodies of people of color, particularly African Americans, are going to be statistically important yes. for the rest of this century. Um, and that's Dr. how Sinkfield, Ben and I connected. Oh, I go ahead. Saying, I wanted you to pick up here. Yeah, recognizing that there was a lack of leadership, um, obviously, as we discussed, a lack of um, opportunities for teaching and a lack of um, opportunities within the healthcare profession for management with nurses of color. I, as a part of the Josie R. Johnson Leadership Academy, a fellow for that program, wanted to try to instill ways that 
we could enrich the not only our environment of healing and health care, but enrich the lives of nurses of color so that they could have an opportunity to advance their careers and advance mm-hmm. and get advanced degrees to be positioned into these roles as leaders and managers and educators in nursing. And so um, I had met Ben and I had a wonderful, delightful introduction with him um, in my attempt to create an opportunity of a scholarship only to learn from him that he had already had one in mind, which was the Francis Mackay Scholarship. Right. So together we teamed up with Marie Mancy and the scholarship is now a fruitful and, and thriving endeavor and we're excited to be able to give away the first two scholarships this coming spring or coming um, fall for the season. But it's all about this advocacy to place more nurses of color, not only in positions of healing, but in management and leadership and research and advocacy at the Capitol, in our communities, in places where we can affect these health outcomes and make a difference and start to change some of this, um, mm-hmm. these disparities that are occurring in our communities and in our healing ways. And so I think it's, for me, it's just been a wonderful opportunity to partner with Ben and Marie on doing this um, as we look forward to changing the landscape of pedagogy and putting uh, black teachers and Hispanic teachers and Native American teachers and, and Latina teachers and all teachers of color in these institutions where people can see that and to go into our communities and educate our kids and inspire them to become nurses and lawyers and teachers um, where they can impact and have an effect on the offspring of, of children of color coming up. There's, we need more opportunities, and we need to continue to challenge. As Ben said, there's, we're starting to challenge some of that in our teaching arenas, but we need, it, it needs to be fruitful throughout all our, all our communities and within all our professions that we're finding ways to connect um, with Dr. people of color and giving them opportunities. In these next uh, last, almost last few minutes that we have, um, I'm wondering if you could just give some um, uh, suggestions for uh, either way, for somebody of color coming into, say, a nursing department uh, that's all white, and for the nursing department that's all white to be able to welcome that person of color. You know, as we start thinking about ways to increase the diversity in our nursing workforce, I think we have to have very robust and measurable strategies uh, in that recruiting and retaining especially. I know even at Gillette we struggle with recruiting and retaining, but we need to have ensure that we have um, programs where there's mentorship and there's opportunities for implicit, uh, to, to understand and be conscious of implicit biases. We need to have more buy-in from administration. We have to have organizational commitment that they're going to do their best to create cultures of inclusivity where people can bring their whole selves. I know, you know, as, again, the only black nurse bring that part that I felt people would respect or that part that Mm -hmm. I thought my white peers wanted to see. I never felt truly whole uh, my first 10, 15 years bringing all of me, you know, especially after having heard from a a professor, uh, a colleague years earlier that my hair was too ethnic for my Mm -hmm. role. So I always had to bring this sense of self that I thought others wanted to see. We need to eradicate that. We need to start allowing people to bring that that history, that, that infiniteness of themselves into this our places of work and education so that um, people feel respected and feel valued. Until we get to that point, it's going to be hard to retain people of color. Mm-hmm. I would agree. and I would add, uh, using the teacher's form formula, I was just there with the Minnesota State Office of Higher Education. Uh, we 
because they're looking at our method and our service going forward. And one of the things that we bring to the table is our assessment piece for the teacher candidates. And it's something that is being um, reviewed to use in other faculty departments other than teacher education, meaning finance, meaning theater arts, meaning business, meaning whatever. And that assessment piece, we call it discovery around our office, and we have five of them that helps bring that core two, three, four, or five student along with the culturally relevant content and pedagogy that the teacher's forum has. And in discovery three, we do what we call role play. And what that means is we take that teacher candidate and we have them imagine themselves actually in the building and the community that they're going to be working in. Mm -hmm. And looking at the potential neglect from the administration that they're going to be working under or the Mm -hmm. potential pushback from the teacher across the hall who may have been there for 30 or 40 years and really isn't having any of this diverse Mm -hmm. content put into their classrooms. And how do you disarm that piece so that you can survive those first three to four years in the business knowing fully that you're doing something that might be a little bit ahead of its time? So those are the kind of things that we hope to bring together um, a path with the present for a more bountiful future um, in all aspects of education, including... And do you have a specific example of that where, uh, even with the role play, where um, you helped uh, someone to know how they could um, uh, come back with... uh, Actually doing a class, I'm an adjunct professor, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, at St. Thomas, and we had our Discovery 3 in the uh, Core 4 classes over there last um, last year. And to, to a student, all of them had their own methodology to help disarm the racism within huh? the buildings that they imagined themselves in. And their method was to keep asking questions ah. of that person that was trying to keep them back. Okay. To help yeah. more so, and more, to have them to have them look at themselves and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They, they, but you know, not why not did you call uh, me the N word, if you will, that sort of thing. Uh, okay, so it is a, a, a challenging them. I was thinking it was more questioning uh, to understand where are you coming from. Um, yeah. Okay. I get that. Um, Dr. Sinkfield, is there anything you'd like to add to that in challenging those uh, attitudes or behaviors of people that are just not open to hearing something I think um, I'm going to make it a little more new? sensitive for me, and it's not even about challenging, but taking the opportunity to know someone's story, to okay. know that there's, we all bring some historical trauma to that interaction, to that moment of engagement. We all mm-hmm. come with our own beliefs and our own ideals, But we have to be receptive and be open to hear another speak, to know another story, to hear them, and to find that place where we can connect, to find that opportunity where we can find a a common sense of humanitarianism humanitarianism, and then walk forward together. We're not going to always agree on everything, and we're not going to always see eye to eye, and we're going to always, there's going to always be a red, and there's going to always be a blue. But we can find a nice common space in between, a compassionate place to understand and to be together 
and to hold each other. And it's, it's getting through that story and through that story to know that. And I wanted to leave, you know, Ben started with such a beautiful, rich history. Um, and we all know that Florence Nightingale was a pioneer of modern nursing, but I don't think a lot of people know that there was a black nurse that accompanied her whose name, she was a Jamaican nurse, and her name was Mary Seacole. Seacole, and she worked as a volunteer during the Crimean War along with Nightingale. She didn't get to go to the front lines with her because she wasn't chosen, and you can, I can only assume why. But she was right there with her and used her own money to travel and to care for wounded soldiers as well. So a little bit of history about that as we always lift, France, lift, lift, lift Florence Nightingale, that we yeah. also think about Mary Seacole in that endeavor too. Ben, do you have something you want? Well, actually, one of the things I want you to talk about is we've mentioned this. Um, uh, we, oops, sorry, <laughs> we mentioned this. Um, uh, talk about the um, scholarship. Could you tell people how they might be able to look into that? How they could connect uh, to the scholarship? Were you talking to me, Leanne? I am Ben. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Yes. Uh, University of Minnesota has a GoFundMe page. It's a cra- it's called crowdfund. Crowdfund. Umn.edu. Right. And yeah. it is universal for all departments. And if you're interested in supporting the Francis Mackay Scholarship, when you go to that crowdfunding page, you look for and you insert the following number, 22842. 22842. 22 okay, great. And that will direct you to specifically the Francis Mackay Scholarship the University of Minnesota School of Nursing. One more time, that number is 22842. Wonderful. Um, We have just a couple of minutes left, so um, I did want to mention that this is not the end of this discussion. I think we've only barely touched the surface of it. Um, One of the things I do want to do is September 9th, um, Ben Mackay and Marie Manthe, um, Dr. Sinkfield mentioned her. Um, some of you may know her as the person who literally wrote the, the um, uh, book on primary nursing. And Ben is the nephew of a groundbreaker in Minnesota history of nursing, uh, his aunt Frances Mackay, which, as we're just saying, they are um, beginning um, a scholarship in her name going forward. And so on September 9th, Marie Manthe and Ben Mackay will be here to talk uh, even more. And I believe also, um, Dr. Singfield, you're also going to be there. I'm going to try. <laughs> okay. To talk about the richness of this woman's life and how she brought us forward uh, in so many ways, uh, showing people in Minnesota and people across the country that um, African-Americans contribute phenomenally to our country. And I am at the end of our time, so I'm just going to say thank you so much for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and I will uh, be with you again next week on Monday. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.
If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900%. 